Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director. And I'm Evan Gottesman, Communications Associate. So Evan, do you know what today is? It's Monday, but I assume you're asking about the 39th anniversary of the Israel-Egypt peace treaty. That's exactly right. On this day in 1979, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin signed a peace treaty, the first between Israel and an Arab state. It was a moment that really required great leadership to achieve. And in line with that theme, we have a special treat for you on today's episode, Israel Policy Forum's 2018 Joseph Forum, a distinguished panel of some very accomplished historians speaking about Israeli leadership held this past week at the Harmony Club in New York. So on this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Anita Shapira, Ambassador Itamar Rabinovich, and Rabbi Daniel Gordas. Each has written a biography of a different Israeli prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, Yitzhak Rabin, and Menachem Begin, respectively. They are joined by moderator Natan Sachs, an Israel expert from the Brookings Institution. And throughout that discussion, you'll hear about the struggles, successes, and failures that Ben-Gurion, Rabin, and Begin faced and their distinct perspectives on peace and relations with Israel's Arab neighbors. We hope you enjoy the program. So if I may start, and maybe I'll start with the one prime minister I remember best, which is Rabin. I remember Begin too. Um, it's the first prime minister I remember. Um, but maybe I'll start with the one I remember best, and especially since we are at the, an IPF event. Um, Ambassador Rabinovich, Itamar, if you could tell us a bit about Rabin the man. Uh, you knew him quite well. Just how did that person, so shy, so reserved, how did he become a towering figure, a prime minister twice? So, uh, shy, reserved, uh, introverted. Um, he, had no, uh, he, he did not have charisma. He had authority. Authority was, was based on, on the fact that he was smart. He understood military affairs, that he excelled in them, became Mr. National Security in the, in the 1980s. And his career developed gradually. Um, unlike charismatic leaders like Moshe Dayan, who at the age of 20, people looked at him and said, he's going to go places. Rabin was not there. And, and Rabin, as Rabin moved on through his military career, then diplomatic, then political career, he always looked at the next step, not at, at the end uh, of the journey. Um, and after being chief of staff, the victorious chief of staff in 1967, he, uh, Prime Minister Eshkol asked him, what would you like to do now? And he said, I'd like to be ambassador in Washington. He wanted to go into politics. He felt that he was too parochial, and uh, he needed to be exposed to the greater world. And he thought that the stint in Washington would do it, which it did. And then he wanted to be a cabinet member, not so easy between him and, and Golda. Um, he came back in 1973, did not have a position during the October War. And when Golda had to resign in 1974 due to the uh, debacle at the outset of, of the war, he was the perfect candidate for labor, former chief of staff, very successful ambassador in Washington, not tarnished, uh, his reputation not tarnished by... Uh, by the war, and um, he had the support of the party brass, and he defeated Shimon Peres in the primaries and became prime minister. Not ready for the job. And Rabin was prime minister twice, 74 to 77, 92 to 95. It's the second term that defined him as a great statesman. The first term was what I call a policy success and political failure. 
it ended with a resignation. Uh, the policy success was the uh, interim agreement with Egypt that laid the basis for the peace with uh, Egypt and taking Israel out of the crisis of uh, 1973, reconstructing the economy and the, uh, and the IDF. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, say, um, and, and of course I should say, uh, for somebody who ended up being a very effective prime minister, a very uh, hesitant politician, a very reluctant politician, didn't like small talk, didn't like pressing the flesh, didn't like picking up the phone to the party members in this or that branch, everything that Shimon Peres, his great rival, uh, excelled at. Um, to those of you who have seen or will see the movie Entebbe, you will see a recent manifestation of that, uh, uh, of that uh, rivalry. So an awkward politician and a great statesman. Thank you. Anita Ben-Gurion seems to be, in a sense, the opposite. Maybe it's just nostalgia speaking, but you say Ben-Gurion, you say great leader. Was this obvious? Was David Green from Plonsk obviously that? Uh, you said that Ben-Gurion was the ultimate, the ultimate uh, uh, establishment. Well, he, it took him many years to become the establishment. He was not thought to be the leading man, I would say, until the early 30s, when he was already uh, in his 50s. So it took him a very long trial to get where he was. And this trial was also the process through which he matured. He, he had a very tempestuous uh, character. He was a revolutionary by nature. And reality always frustrated him because reality never matched his imagination. And this frustration erupted sometimes in storms that his friends and politicians around him had to curb him, had to make him face reality, to face the fact that not everything that he wanted, he had the tools to achieve. But the result was that because he became a, a national leader only in the 40s, his trajectory helped him to understand politics to, to the very, very uh, delicate nu nuances. And he became a leader with charisma only after he became prime minister, after the establishment of the state. Naturally, he did not have charisma, but then in the last uh, uh, years of his life, I would say since 48, he was exceptionally charismatic. People thought that he was the the father of all of us. When he resigned the first time, 
in 52 to go to Zdeboker. Why did he do it? He did it because he thought that he has to reignite uh, the fire of pioneering. So if he goes to Zdeboker, the youth of the country will, would follow him. But this did not happen. And in his last years, he was very frustrated with the state he established. The state did not live up to his ideals. Now, he, he had a, a wonderful quality, which I think he uh, exceptional. He cared about culture. In his days, the days, the most difficult years economically of the state of Israel, Four universities were established, and there was never a, a case that funds were not found for culture. He established the Academy of Science. He established the Prize of Israel, and all of that he did in times when the economy was in dire straits. I not mentioning all his political achievements, uh, establishment of the state, uh, um, the war of independence, winning the war of independence, leading uh, the, uh, the creation of the state uh, institutions, uh, the, uh, the, the reparation agreement, etc., etc., etc. Nevertheless, he was very much frustrated because the state did not become the ideal state that he had in mind. The utopian image of a light to the nations did not realize, and he knew it. And this frustrated him in his last years terribly. And as usual, he had no patience. His character was a very lively personality. Rabin, for instance, was the opposite. He loved, by the way, the argument. He loved the debate. He would like very much to cross swords at the Knesset. This was his uh, forte. And he did it especially interestingly. But I think I talked too much. <laughs> Thank you, but fascinating. And I neglected to say, all these are teasers. The, the real meat of it is in the, in the books. So here are three things that lead sort of directly to begging, either directly or the opposite. An arc, a very long arc to leadership. Begin lost many elections, was in the political desert, was the man sitting next to Badel. He was, but unlike these two leaders, was a naturally charismatic orator, a brilliant speaker. Uh, in the election campaigns of the 70s and the 80s, I remember there was fiery speaking. Um, and he certainly loved the debate in the Knesset. How, what was Begin like compared to these two? Is it, is it fair to say he's, he's the almost the opposite of the two, if you could be the opposite of two things? 
Well, he's, um, I think he's also, a, a, in a lot of ways, despite the charisma, a rather private person in his own way. Um, he had these years in the middle, just like the others were talking about. There was a kind of an arc. He had a, he had a, when he finally hit his stride as prime minister in 77, he really became a fiery orator, and which he already was before. The reparations we saw already in Kikartziom, and he gave his very famous speech. But when I think of Begin, you know, we all think of him as the guy that uh, made the Egyptian deal, the guy that won the ninth election after losing eight in a row, which apparently is some sort of history-making achievement in the Western world. <laughs> apparently, that's what they say. I haven't checked every country, every candidate, but that's what I'm told. Uh, he bombed Osirak. Uh, you know, he was the prime minister during Sabra and Shatila. He got Israel involved in Lebanon. So you think of him during those relatively few years as a guy of tremendous accomplishment, both good and some people would say bad. Uh, but as you pointed out, there's a very long, dark, painful period uh, of 29 years. And I, when I think of Begin's personality, uh, the, what, what strikes me more than anything else is that he, ends, he begins and ends his career in Eretz Israel hiding. He hides at the beginning from the British for a very long time. And then he hides from Am Yisrael at the end of his life after Eliza dies. And he resigns. Um, interestingly enough, by the way, we're not going to compare to anything modern at all. But just to say, I'm just saying, uh, when he resigned the premiership, he actually had nowhere to go live. He didn't have any money. He'd won the Nobel Prize. He'd given all the money away. He and Eliza had lived in a, a rented apartment on Rosenbaum 1 in Tel Aviv. So when he left the premiership, he moved in with his daughter. Uh, there were complicated other reasons for that as well, but, but this is a very, different kind of, uh, a very different kind of guy. But he, he begins in hiding, and he ends in hiding. And I think that that actually says a tremendous amount about both the greatness of his ability to come out in the middle, but also the tragic nature of his life as well. There's a very kind of a tragic figure in here as well, despite tremendous accomplishment. The only other thing that I would add, and I think it's interesting to think that, I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but it would be an interesting lens through which to look at these three characters is to ask from where comes their devotion to the idea of a Jewish state? Because they're actually all very different wellsprings. In other words, Begin was not, everybody thinks he was religious. He wasn't religious. But he had a kind of a love and affinity for Jewish tradition, uh, which the others, Ben-Gurion grew up with it and abandoned it, and Rabin never had it. Um, but Rabin obviously is the first Sabra to become prime minister, and Ben-Gurion is a person who, like very many of the uh, elder statesmen of the Zionist movement, most of whom Anita's written books about, um, you know, grew up in these traditional homes. Paris was an example of that and, and many others, uh, and then left it. So it would be an interesting conversation to ask what got each of these three people, each of them in their own way, to be so passionately devoted to this idea of a Jewish state. I think they came to it from very different places. In Meridol's words, he spoke Jewish. Right, he spoke Jewish. That's what, that's what turned them on. By the way, American Jews, when he was elected in 1977, were horrified. Right. First of all, when he, when, when he became the head of the opposition as the head of Cherut at the beginning in 1948-49, he comes to the States and there are literally occasions like in Cleveland where nobody shows up to hear him. The, 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 the establishment had orchestrated it so that nobody would show. He would, there would be two people, three people, but the, the, how do you say, Ulam? the auditorium would be, would be empty. Um, so he was really the paradigmatic outsider of that. And becomes, when he becomes prime minister in 1977, of course, people are, are, are panicked. Right? A, a, a terrorist, he blew up the King David Hotel. He was the head of the Etzel. Uh, he's kind of this old Polish gentleman trying to run a modern Israeli Sabra country. Nothing fit about him. And of course, 
um, he did tremendous things. He did, obviously, Egypt. He did Osirak, which is much in the news today because in light of the revealing of the story about, about Damascus in 2007, uh, there's now been a lot of discussion of what's called the Begin Doctrine. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, there's a tremendous amount of passion there. There's a tremendous amount of accomplishment, but also a tremendous amount of sadness. These three, thank you. These, these three figures meet, of course, throughout their many years, and, and many of these points that you can see in the three different books actually define, I think, a lot of Israeli history. I'd be remiss if we don't mention the obvious early one, which is Altalena. Um, so Yitzhak Rabin was visiting his girlfriend at the time, Leah, uh, and happened to be around at the headquarters and found himself the senior officer. Yitzhak, could you walk us through what's happening there and why this is such a momentous moment for Israel? Yes, uh, I will. But before I do that, I'd like to, like to mention the fact that all the three, our three heroes of uh, uh, Persona uh, uh, interact. They all, they all affect each other. It's been mentioned how Ben Gurion ostracized Begin. Uh, Rabin and Ben Gurion had a lengthy, lengthy relationship. Rabin was a young officer. Ben Gurion knew his mother, and actually, Rabin stood up to, to Ben Gurion as a as a young man and went to the demonstration against the disbanding of the Palmach. Um, and the most dramatic moment is on the eve of the Six-Day War, when Rabin, perplexed, goes to see Ben-Gurion, and Ben-Gurion gives him uh, <coughs> a piece of his mind and, and admonishes him, and, and, and Rabin has a two-day breakdown uh, after that. And Rabin, I was both ambassador and peace negotiator with him, he always looked at Begin as, a, as an example of the, the man who made this huge decision about peace with Egypt, who had the courage to go against his own grain and knew how to sell it to the Israeli public. And he tried to, when we negotiated with Syria, he tried to tailor-make the deal with Syria to look like a deal with Egypt because that has already been legitimized by, by Begin. So um, now, Altalena is a, an amazing story. Altalena, to those of you who do not know, was a ship brought by Menachem Begin's Irgun. Um, but not with Yeah, by the French branch of, uh, uh, of the Irgun, uh, came to what has now become the state of Israel. And Ben-Gurion was very steadfast. It, it, it carried some immigrants and it carried weapons given by the French government to the Irgun. And Ben-Gurion was very steadfast. He said, if Israel is to survive, it needs to have one authority, one army. And therefore, he refused to allow the Irgun to take the weapons to Jerusalem. That was not part of the state. And later on, he disbanded the Palmach, which was sort of a, a militia of the left. Um, and No, it's, at that time, at that time, excuse me, yeah. At that time, the Palmach was a part of the IDF already. Well, later, yeah, later. And not, uh, not a militia. And on the other hand, and on the other hand, uh, you have to remember how young the state was. The state was about two weeks old, something like that. And the question of the sovereignty of the state and of authority 
uh, was for Ben-Gurion a major question. He was always suspicious of the anarchistic inclinations of the Jewish people. <laughs> Jews did not accept authority. He was also very suspicious of yeah. Begin as a person. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. But nevertheless, this was not the major question. He wanted to have a saying loud and clear. Now is a new era. There is one authority, one army. That's it. Sometimes, I must say today, I feel that this kind of approach could have helped us sometimes. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, Ben-Gurion used that, uh, a Hebrew term that is not exactly translatable into English, mamlachtiyut, sort of statism. The state had, had to have this authority, and, and therefore he, he wanted the Irgun to submit, and eventually when they did not submit, he ordered uh, um, the artillery to f- fire at, at the boat, and it sank. And this, of course, became a big issue then and subsequently. Now, as it happened, Yitzhak Rabin, this was the, um, the first uh, 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 ceasefire in the War of Independence. Uh, Rabin, a lieutenant colonel, was visiting his uh, fr- girlfriend, subsequent wife, or future wife, uh, Leah, in the Palmach headquarters on the Tel Aviv beach when the fighting with Altelena began and a couple of bo- uh, <coughs> smaller boats came from the boat uh, to the coast and there was fighting and Rabin was the most senior officer uh, uh, on the scene and he took charge and there was some fighting but the two major elements of the Altelena affair, the sinking of the Altelena and later the offensive against the Irgun people in the Tel Aviv region were conducted by Ben-Gurion and by Eagle uh, Alone, who is the subject of another biography by, uh, by Anita. So Rabin basically played a very marginal role in the Altalena affair. And if you open the first book on Altalena, written by Begin's spokesman and a very much a, a Likud, Herut person called Shlomo Nagdimon, uh, the story of Altalena, you barely read two lines about Rabin. Later on, when Rabin became prime minister and began to clash with the settlers and with the right wing, they dug up the Altalena affair, yeah, and as, as the assassin, Igal Amir, uh, said, someone who killed Jews on the beach in Tel Aviv deserved to be assassinated. Mm-hmm. And this now became a big cause celebre when the, today the right wing turned Rabin into the major culprit in the uh, Altalena affair. So much so that um, there is a website in the Prime Minister's office that commemorates former Israeli uh, presidents and prime ministers who passed away. Somebody broke into that website and inserted uh, an ugly segment uh, into, into it in order to blacken uh, Rabin's name. So And D- Daniel, it's not just the Oigal Amir who, who was traumatized by this. Um, you still can hear among huge parts of the population in Israel the memory of Altalena, the memory of the saison, the, the French season of uh, hunting against the Irgun, the right wing. Um, this was a huge deal for Begin. Begin couldn't swim. He was on the boat and couldn't swim, right? right. So I don't be- agree. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that. 
I, uh, That's right, we're first here. of all, this does leave everybody very traumatized. And I'll just start by telling you one quick story. I have a 95, 96-year-old cousin in Afula. And uh, whenever we're up in the north, and for my wife, anything within 300 miles is right around the corner from Afula. We have to go visit the cousin. So we were coming around from, we were coming down from the Golan one time about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And she says, we'll go to Afula. We'll say hi to so-and-so. And we didn't have anything to bring. And my wife was much better bred than I was. I thought, who cares? She's 95. What does he need? But in any event, she thought we had to bring something. So we go. We went to the store. We bought a copy of my Begum biography. I bring him a copy of the Begum biography. And he says to me very suspiciously, he was in the Haganah, I should mention. He says to me very suspiciously, did you know Begin? As if, if you didn't know him, you actually can't write a book about him. So I pointed out people write books about Genghis Khan. I don't think most of them knew him. Um, so he, t- he accepted that point. But then to sort of get over it, I said to him, did you know Begin? And he said, well, no, but I fired at him uh, because he was, uh, he was part of the, 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 the thing on the ground. Look, I, the, the Altalena leaves very great scars, but it also emerges from very great divisions. In other words, um, Professor Rabinovich is absolutely, of course, correct that this has a lot to do with solidifying and unifying the various military operations under the IDF. It also has to do, though, from Begin's point of view, with trying to save his soldiers who are defending Jerusalem, which is therefore at that point not part of Israel, to which Ben-Gurion, perhaps quite legitimately, does not want to send IDF resources to defend the city that is not going to be part of the country. To Begin, the position was, these guys are dying, we've got to get them some arms. So what was portrayed, I think, unfairly, but we can argue about that, by Ben-Gurion as being a kind of a resistance against the authority of the state, I think from Begin's perspective, and he certainly didn't necessarily handle it, right, from his perspective was a matter of, we have all these arms in the boat, let's take some small percentage and try to save some of these guys in Jerusalem. The Altalena also becomes something that actually symbolizes great divisions between the leftists, laborites, um, and then the generations that come from the people in the Etzel and eventually Likud down the road. People who were in the Etzel after 48, 49 couldn't get jobs in government offices. People who were killed in the fighting on the who were killed in the fighting after the there was fighting actually on the ground and soldiers were killed and Etzel people were killed. Uh, not many, thank God, but but a few were. Uh, ben Gurion did not allow them to be buried in cemeteries in Tel Aviv. So I mean, what we're talking about here is a very deep divide in the country. The explosion of the boat is really just a kind of a, a, a very pinnacle of a very deep divide about a whole array of issues. If you want to make things even a little bit more interesting and complex and the way biography influences ideology and so forth, the person who was responsible for buying the Altalena in America, the, the money raising and all of that, is Jeremy Ben-Ami's father. Who, after He's the, the Alt- founder of J Street. Who's the, who, after the Altalena is sunk, leaves Israel and never goes back. So there, there is a tremendous number of people here who feel uh, violated, who feel betrayed, who feel that their position was the noble position. And the truth of the matter is that they were all on some level right. Ben-Gurion was right that they had to unify the armed forces. Begin was right that the guys in Jerusalem needed to be defended. Um, as one last sentence about this, I think one of the ways of looking at Israeli history is to point out that very often the people who are on the opposite sides of the divide, if we didn't have both, we wouldn't have anything. If you didn't have Herzl and Achad Ha'am, you'd have no Jewish state of any substance. Because without Herzl, there'd be no state. Without Achad Ha'am, there'd be no substance to it. If you didn't have Begin and Ben-Gurion, you'd have no Jewish state. 
Ben-Gurion built the whole infrastructure and got the state ready. And I think a lot of people, would, I would certainly suggest that if it was not for Begin's willingness to ultimately bomb the King David Hotel, among other things, the British weren't going anywhere so fast. But anyway, I think it's very often ways to look at you need both, not one or the other. So, Anita, I want to turn to you for one second. I just want to point out that... Ragdaka, uh, This is very I just want to point out that the debates um, of the 1940s have died down and they're long in the past. I am no not going... Not so, going to talk about it. No, I want to ask. Um, no, Hebrew I, I, comes I, out. I just want to say that I think that today the issue of Altalena, the issue of the season, are, uh, as my mother would say, kalteloksin, which means something that is of no meaning today. That it is only of, of meaning to old people older than me even. So I don't see how it affects today the Likud, the, the Labour Party. It, it, it is non-issues anymore. I, I think it's clear. The current government is, is trying to reshape the Israeli narrative. And they do it in a very blatant way, including they put in some, some very aggressive uh, speakers on, on different talk shows on the radio. Uh, and if you listen to any of these talk shows, n- never mind the talkbacks, they revive all, all these issues as they enumerate the sins of, uh, uh, of the labor movement. So if uh, Anita simply writes in the morning, and I, I sometimes listen to the radio, and uh, I, I hear some of that uh, um, rhetoric. And uh, there's a, a deliberate attempt to, to rewrite the history. I think, I think this is important. I'm going to have to move to another issue on a tasting menu. But I do want to point out that this question of the insider-outsider and who sees themselves as the establishment, who is the outsider, has first changed dramatically in Israel. And secondly, I think it's, it's politically extremely important, Daniel, as, as actually all of you have pointed out. I want to jump to a completely different topic. Um, a minor issue, the question of relations between Jews and Arabs uh, in, in the land, and especially what's known as the demographic questions. Susie, when she introduced the evening, said that the IPF is, um, is dedicated to preserving Israel, Jewish, democratic, etc. And the core of the dilemma, the trilemma really she posed, was about how to have the land, uh, but also the Jewish nature, and also a democracy. Back uh, in the early Knesset, um, Ben-Gurion said, was explaining, he was asked why in 1949, when the war had already turned uh, in favor of what was already Israel, um, he, under his leadership, the West Bank was not taken. And he said, um, let's assume we could militarily conquer the whole Western land of Israel. And he said, we could probably. Then what? We would create one state. But this state would want to be democratic. There will be general elections, and we will be in the minority. This is in the first Knesset, I believe. Fast forward to 1967. He meets Rabin, as Etamal described. He, he fears the worst. What was his reaction when the West Bank was taken, and the Gaza Strip, of course? He, he continued to keep true to his opinion that was formed in the late 30s that in order to solve the question of the land, we have to partition it. And Ben-Gurion remained a, a 
adherent of the partition idea since the 30s straight on until he died. He said that in, in 67 that we should give back all the West Bank and Gaza against uh, when we have a, a true peace with the Arabs except for Jerusalem and uh, Golan Heights. So Ben-Gurion always thought about the demographic question. And not only that, I would say that to the question of the land, there were from the very beginning two possible, possible venues to solve it. One was the partition of the land, and the other was giving up part of, of uh, sovereignty, namely uh, sharing the ruling of the land with the Arabs. This remained true to this very day. Either you have a binational state, or you have to give up part of the land. I don't see anything changed from the early 30s. I think one of the most interesting differences perhaps between both Rabin and Ben-Gurion and Begin is exactly on this question. Begin, just before he's elected to prime minister in France, he speaks in the parliament, actually, and he says about his own plan, we shall give a free option of citizenship to the members of the Arab nation which we recognize. There will be one law for them and the Jewish citizens. If they choose to become citizens, they will vote to the Knesset as well. If they choose to be legal residents, rather they will have rights except for voting. And they said the Arab minority shall have cultural autonomy. This continues when he's elected. He presents his plan to the Knesset. It evolves, however, into the autonomy. Could you explain a bit Begin's thinking? How did he wrestle with the numbers? Yeah, I, well, the way I, not everybody's going to agree about the interpretation. My interpretation is, I asked, when I was writing the book, there were two people that I really wanted to try to understand. I asked about autonomy. What, did he, what was he really thinking about autonomy? And I spoke to Don Meridor, and I spoke to Yechiel Kadishai, who unfortunately has passed away since then. And they it was both Begin's actually, personal assistant. He was his right-hand right -hand man in many ways. And they both said the same thing, that both in the 7th Knesset, I think it was in 69, when he first made this comment about giving Arabs uh, citizenship, uh, and, and even later when he was talking about autonomy, he didn't really know what he was talking about. In other words, he was trying in 69, I think, to make clear what certain people never were willing to acknowledge was that the Begin-Jabotinsky line, which is most definitely not the Jabotinsky-Begin-Netanyahu line, it is just not. Uh, the, the name of the party may be the same thing, but there is no, there's just no overlap in terms of fundamental liberalism. He was trying to show that the Jabotinskyites were fundamentally liberals, by which we mean not left-wingers, but fundamentally committed to human rights, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, etc., etc. It's one of the things that got him elected, by the way, right? Because he didn't have the certain elitism of the Europeans vis-a-vis -vis the Mizrahim, and the Mizrahim ultimately in 77 voted him into power. But already in 69 and so forth, he's saying to the world, whatever you think of me, understand this, I'm really fundamentally a liberal. What can I say that's going to make you understand that? I'm willing for Arabs to be able to be citizens. I don't know if he really thought it through. I think the same thing is true of autonomy. The same thing is true, by the way, with the people today who are talking about annexation, who have thought through absolutely none of it. Because, no, no, that's a very serious point. Because oh, yeah. if, you, if you annex just Area C, for example, or parts of Area C, I know we're sort of getting into the modern stuff, but 
you end up you end up taking in, for example, at least several just in Area C, several hundred thousand Palestinians who all of a sudden get health care, get education, have rights. This is an extremely expensive operation, having nothing to do with democracy, Judaism, and so on and so forth. So I actually don't think that Begin was serious about it either time. I don't think he was meaning to be duplicitous. I think the first time he was trying to show that he's really a liberal at heart, and the second time with autonomy, it's really trying to avoid Carter's pressuring to move in the direction of making some accommodation to the Palestinians, which he was never going to do. One last point about this. When I interviewed Qadi Shai, uh, it was during the building freeze that Obama had uh, imposed on Netanyahu at that point. And Qadi Shai, to his dying day, was a defender of Begin. Begin was, you know, the, the great whatever. And I was sitting in his, in his living room, in his apartment in Tel Aviv, and I said to him, let's say Begin was prime minister today. And Obama said to him, you got to do a building freeze in the West Bank. What would Begin say? And I was ready for him to say, he would tell that president, blah, blah, blah. And he said, he took a deep breath, and he said, To tell you the truth, I have no idea. And that's Begin's greatness. In other words, the same guy that was the, perceived as the ultra-hawk uh, gave away the Sinai to try to make peace. The same guy, for example, who got the Nobel Prize, um, you know, was also the guy who attacked Osirak. In other words, there's, there, he was a complicated guy, and I think part of his greatness was that it, we, would have, we have no way of knowing what he would do today. It's very easy to say either he gave back lands, he didn't give back land. His objection wasn't to giving back land. It was to creating another state that he thought would be an enemy of the Jewish people or the Jewish state. By the same token, some people say, why did he go into a deep depression at the end? Because he understood that by giving Sinai, he'd created a, a precedent giving back the West Bank. I think that's ridiculous. But um, he's a very, all of these men are, are very complicated, very nuanced, very multifaceted. Uh, and we have no way of knowing, for example, just because of his stand about autonomy or citizenship back then, what he would say about the demographics today. He was ultimately a pragmatist. So, Itamar, I'd like to turn to you and, and ask you to commit the cardinal sin for an historian, which is to ask the counterfactual. Um, following exactly on this, what would happen, what, what would Rabin's position be had he lived, uh, if only? Um, would he have really gone, uh, in his in second term, assuming he had won an election, which is an assumption, um, would he have gone for something like the Clinton parameters, Jordan Valley, Palestinian State, Jerusalem? If I may, just two brief comments about begging and autonomy. First, Sadat, Sadat began by asking something much simpler. He wanted a sentence. The legi- Israel recognizes the legitimate national rights of the Palestinians. And Begin, who was educated in a Polish law school and thought about abstract ideas, and so forth, said, I can do that because legitimate national rights means statehood, and I will not do that. So he went in a circuitous way to look for something else. And that something else was also rooted in his earlier experience in life in the autonomy ideas in Eastern and Central Europe that were where he grew up. Anyway, about, about Rabin. So Rabin's last uh, statement on the issue uh, uh, was made in October 1995 uh, during the Knesset vote on uh, Oslo II, a few weeks before the assassination, and he said a Palestinian entity less than a state. That was his last formal stated position. Now, of course, uh, he knew that final status negotiations lay ahead, and he knew that 
there would be a very tough bargaining and negotiation with Arafat. And of course, why would he say statehood and give Arafat the bottom line before the negotiations started? I think that, you know, Rabin was a smart man when he signed the Oslo Accord. He knew very well that the end of the road was, uh, was statehood. Now, on Jerusalem, he, he had a very fierce position. He fought in Jerusalem and on the way to Jerusalem um, in 1948. This was a traumatic experience for him, and it would have been very difficult for him. It would have been easier in uh, other places. Now, you know, as we speculate this counterfactual history, you have to remember that he had yet to be re-elected. He was not leading in the polls against Netanyahu at the time. And then he would have to negotiate with Arafat, which was not, would not have been that, that easy. Um, I, I, I think that uh, if, if he were living today and had to deal with today, um, he would try to go for a unilateral or for a program not dissimilar to the one that this forum is very well familiar with of the commanders for Israeli security. So it's not full statehood, definitely not annexation, definitely not creeping annexation, which is the so-called status quo, because there is no status quo. Uh, so I would say less than, than a state in the given circumstances, but definitely not the status quo. Thank you. Um, I want to leave enough time for questions, and we will have two microphones, and we'll ask people to uh, line up by them. I'll give a, a final sort of lightning round question before we begin. And I'd like to recognize uh, Congresswoman. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, if I may ask now to break all our rules and think about today, because we have journalists in the audience and they want that. What can we learn from these three figures, from this question of leadership, all the ups and downs, the arcs, etc., about the state of Israel. You, all of you actually hinted at it. Um, but if you can, briefly, and before we turn to the audience, what's the takeaway, do you think, we, from these three leaders? May I go to the question, when a leader should retire? <laughs> no, 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 I'm talking Which about country history. Talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about history. Now, the question, this is a very complicated question, because if we look at the careers of both Churchill and de Gaulle, they had their moment in history, and then they ended ignobly. Now, let's go to our leaders. Rabin, in a way, was lucky, excuse me for saying that, because he, what happened to him was what happened to Herzl. He died before his time. And as a result, he remained beautiful in our memory. Now, Ben-Gurion stayed on too long. I, am, I just think about, had he not returned from Zdeboker in 53, when he went the first time to Zdeboker, he got thousands and thousands of letters from citizens worried about his return. But he returned. 
Then he could have retired after the Sinai campaign, but he did not. He could have retired in 59 after his greatest ele election victory. He did not. He could have retired in 1960 after he announced in the Knesset the capture of Heichmann. But he did not. He stayed on and retired in 63, vilified by almost everybody and getting on the nerves of everybody. <laughs> and then we have Begin, the same story. Had he retired after the first term, he would have been the greatest leader ever. The second, lead, second term ended very, very poorly with his hiding from the people of Israel. So the question of when a leader should retire, and coming back to the basic question, is a very, very question that has meaning to our time as well. And I, I myself, I wish Prime Minister Netanyahu that he would know when to retire. Thank you. Daniel. One of the things... Well, we found the subject of that, which was unanimity. That's good. Um, one of the things that I think it's important to understand these people was the sense of tremendous responsibility that they had for safeguarding the future of the Jewish people. In other words, they were not politicians as much as they were on a mission. A mission from history, a mission from God, a mission from whatever. These were people, all three of them in their own way, very much on a mission. And I don't want to be misunderstood in any way in saying the following thing, but Netanyahu sees himself the same way. I agree with you, he should retire like last year. But, um, but Netanyahu has convinced himself that he is Israel's savior. He believes when he gets into bed at the end of the day that there is nobody else in the state who can negotiate with Trump and with India and with China and keep Israel safe in the skies over Syria. He just really believes that. By the way, so do a lot of Israelis, which is why you have most Israelis being relatively sure that at least in two of the Tikim, uh, whatever, accusations, whatever, that cases that he's, that he's probably very guilty and being willing to sort of give it a pass because they actually have bought into this savior thing to a certain extent. Now, obviously, most of us here look at this particular example in a not particularly positive way. But I think, again, when I look at somebody like Ben-Gurion, yeah, he should have retired here, should have retired. But if he had been a man who could have retired, he would not have been the man who would have built the state. That's just the nature of the complexity of the personalities. Thank you. Itamar, um, any final comments? And especially I want to note that Rabin, uh, he had a disastrous uh, or a terrible end, but he also resigned from a first term under very specific circumstances. So, Yeah. Uh, so two, uh, two, two points. One uh, actually is to do with uh, Begin and Netanyahu. Danny uh, <clears throat> mentioned now that a lot of Israelis see Netanyahu as the savior too. Many of them are Mizrahi Israelis. And the man who created 
the alliance between the Likud and the Mizrahi component of the Israeli population was Begin. No, it was Ben-Gurion who turned them away, ah, actually. Okay. No, and it was. And Begin was there, Begin was there to but collect. But they loved Ben-Gurion. Yeah. Uh, they didn't they vote for loved, him. They loved him, but yeah. they didn't vote for they him. They voted yeah. for him. Yeah. It's Historians. not as anyway. of Anyway, Begin, Begin was there to collect. You remember the famous speech where he spoke about the kibbutz member sitting by the pool and the people in the development town and so and so he was able to uh, formulate and sell quote unquote the doctrine is that there is this natural alliance between you the underprivileged and us we are also isolated persecuted underprivileged we are in power but we are not the establishment the establishment is the old Ashkenazi labor academic intellectual Establishment. And that is very valid to this very day. You cannot understand current Israeli politics without it. Now, you asked about the component of leadership. I think it's the ability to make those historic decisions that, in a way, even run against your grain. Um, you realize that it's either an opportunity or a, a must. It needs to be done. It's very difficult. Um, and you have it in you to do two things. One is to make the decision and then to make the country or the people follow you and, and, and implement. And all, uh, all three uh, share in that. If you enjoyed this podcast, stay tuned for new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can check out Israel Policy Forum's other great work at www.israelpolicyforum.org and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Israel Policy Pod. Toda.